Any questions left over from this morning? Well, the, the karma is not just in the things you do and say, but it's also in the things you think. And so, I mean, whether the person is actually sensitive to this or not, that would be another question. I mean, some people are. They can know somebody's angry at them. But um, it's interesting, the Buddha says when you harm somebody, it's basically, as I said, getting them to do unskillful things. This, there's a tendency I've seen in um, sort of modern Buddhist circles to say if you say something and it hurts someone's feelings, that's harming them, and it's not the case. You can hurt somebody's feelings, if you, and it depends on your intentions, why you're saying that. That makes the difference between whether you're betting, creating bad karma for yourself or not. But that's not necessarily harming other people. That's their issue. I mean, the fact that you have the anger and that you're cultivating it, that's, that's the karma there. Okay, we're building up to the practice of breath mindfulness. And so, after all these different contemplations, you're ready for the 16 steps of how you deal with the breath. Now, as I said earlier, that contemplation of making the mind like earth is not that you just sit there and passively accept whatever's going to come up. Because in the course of doing breath mindfulness, you find that it's actually quite proactive. Um, when he, what the Buddha teaches Rahula here is basic 16 steps. They fall into four sets of four. Each of the sets is called a tetrad. The first tetrad deals with the body, the second one deals with feelings, the third deals with mind, and the fourth deals with dhammas. So it's basically got the four foundations or the four frames of reference for establishing mindfulness. And it's good to see these not as that you're going to do one through sixteen in sequential order, but you've got three basic areas that you're going to be working on at the same time, body, feelings, and mind. And in any particular session of meditation, it's going to depend on where the problem is, which of those three frameworks you're going to be focusing on most. In some cases, it's the body, uh, the breath is the problem, so you work with issues of the breath. Sometimes it's issues of feeling are the problem, and feeling and perceptions go together here in five. We'll talk about that in a minute. From five to eight. From nine through twelve, you're focusing on the mind. You just become sensitive to the mind. Then the question is, okay, does the mind need to be satisfied, or could the word is gladdened? Because we call it gladdening the mind. That doesn't need to be gladdened, doesn't need to be steadied, or it doesn't need to be released. And then you do whatever is needed to fix whatever imbalance there is in the mind. And then in terms of release, this is when you get into that final tetrad. And we, we talked about this earlier, about the five steps when you're going to release the mind from a particular way of thinking or a particular attitude. You look at it, its origination, you look at its passing away, you compare the allure with the drawbacks until you develop this passion. So that goes from focusing on inconstancy, that's one of the ways of developing dispassion. And then from there goes to dispassion, cessation, where you stop creating these things because you no longer have any passion for them. And then finally you get relinquish it, everything including the path. That's the basic outline of those 16 steps. In each of the tetraj, especially in the first three, you find yourself First, you're sensitizing yourself to the extent to which there is a fabrication going on in that aspect. Whether it's fabrication in terms of the body, i.e. the breath. Fabrication, metal fabrication, which would be feelings and perceptions. 
This is clearest in that second tetrad. You start out trying to breathe in a way that gives rise to rapture, breathe in a way that gives rise to pleasure. Then you try to notice, it says, I will breathe in sensitive to mental fabrication, <clears throat> i.e. what is the impact that those feelings have on the mind. Of course, mental fabrication also covers perceptions. What are the labels I'm using? Can I use different labels that would have a different effect on the mind? And then finally, the fourth step is to calm the mental fabrication. This parallels what you said in the fourth, in the first, excuse me, the first tetrad. First, you just sensitize yourself to the breath. This is what long breathing feels like. This is what short breathing feels like. John Lee expands a bit, quite a bit on this. He says you try to figure it short, long, in, deep, shallow, heavy, light, in, long, out, short, in, short, out, long. What kind of breathing feels best? And then you are sensitive to the fact that you're breathing in and out entire to sensitive to the entire body, and then you train yourself to breathe in and out, calming bodily fabrication, i.e. you allow the breath to grow more and more calm, so it has a better impact on the body. So that's the basic outline. And the purpose of all this is to get the mind into concentration. This is one of those passages where it's very clear that we're working on mindfulness and concentration at the same time. The Buddha never discussed these as two totally separate processes. Part of the problem comes from the fact that I think I mentioned it the other day that in looking at mindfulness practice as a whole, there is the Satipatthana Sutta and the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. These are big, long suttas on the topic of mindfulness. And people assume that because they're long, they must be complete. And the Buddha shows that by, at the very beginning of the sutta, he gives the entire formula for mindfulness practice. But then he explains only one part. He says, for example, with the breath. Or the body. You're, you keep track of the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. Okay, that's the whole formula for the body. And then the questions he asks is, what does it mean to keep track of the body in and of itself? Stop. Okay, there's a whole another part of that formula that's not getting explained in the sutta. So the sutta is devoted to just one little slice of what mindfulness practice is. And the Buddha himself once said he could talk for a hundred years on mindfulness and not, not, not repeat himself. There's a lot to be said. This makes you think, hmm, mindfulness can't mean just you know, accepting whatever comes up. You don't talk for a hundred years about accepting whatever comes up. You just say, okay, there's things to be done in order to get the mind to settle down. Because this is how right mindfulness functions on the path. It is basically what gets you into concentration. Because you look at your body, feelings, mind, you're trying to put all three of those together. Sense of the breath, feeling the body, the comfortable feeling, feeling the body your awareness filling the body. They're all there, kind of consecutive, or together. And you're trying to get that in the, in the same state of balance. So that's basically your, if you compare the descriptions of jhana to the descriptions of mindfulness, the descriptions of mindfulness about the recipe, how you make the food, and jhana is a description of, well, this is how the food should taste when it's well made. This, the mindfulness is the how-to, and the descriptions of jhana, kind of like the restaurant review. <laughs> when a really good cook does a really good job, okay, this is what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> That's a quick intro to breath, breath mindfulness. Any questions? Okay, basically the Satipatthana Sutta lays out all the different things that you could be mindful of. Now, the Anapanasati Sutta basically starts out, we'll be getting to that in a minute, but it's basically saying you stay with the breath, and that you can, with, as you stay with the breath, you can actually cover all four bases, basically, all four frames of reference.
because as you're paying attention to the breath, you are creating a feeling of comfort, and your mind is also right there, and you're developing a quality of equanimity. So you've got all four in one. I think the Anapanasati Sutta is actually closer to a description. This is how you really do it. Whereas, to make another, make another comparison, the, the Siddhipatthana Sutta is kind of like the catalog. You could choose from all these various options. But if you choose the option of the breath, then the Buddha says, okay, this is how it's done. And you can see, you're, it's not just mindfulness, you're also developing concentration. And at the same time, given the fact that it's constantly talking about bodily fabrication, mental fabrication, and the fact that these, these phrases you say to yourself as you say, okay, I will breathe in and out, sensitive to this, I'll breathe in and out, sensitive to that, that's verbal fabrication. So it's getting you sensitive to the process of fabrication at the same time as telling you to calm those fabrications down. So you're getting both tranquility and insight going together at the same time. I'd say you, you, there's some that we create inadvertently through past actions. Because what you're dealing with at any one moment is the results of past actions, your present actions, and the results of present actions. Something's come into the mind as a result of past actions. You say, okay, this, this is coming in. I, I didn't consciously create it, but there's, there must be something in, in my past that brings it up right now. Now the question is, do I want to follow this or not? Is this helpful or not? For instance, you find that the, the, you focus on the breath, and the breath is really strange today. Something feels wrong about the breath. You say, okay, maybe, I don't know how I slept last night, or I had a bad dream last night, or something. Something's got, my, got it all fouled up. So let's see if I can consciously work with the breath to calm things down. Try longer breathing, shorter breathing, whatever is going to work. So sometimes you're, give, you're presented with something that was, you know, some bad cooking from last night, or the previous, your previous karma. So, okay, let's see if we can fix up the food. The breath and what? Okay, the breath, the breath is bodily fabrication. The in and out breath is bodily fabrication. And so you f focus on, okay, because you, your sense of the body has to come through the way you're breathing. And so you say, okay, so if something is wrong with the way I'm breathing, it's going to create a sense of the body which is really uncomfortable. So let's work on that directly. Did I explain that there are three different kinds of fabrication? Bodily, verbal, and mental? No? I did, okay. Hmm. Bodily is the breath. Verbal is what you direct a thought and evaluation, i.e. You're, you're talking to yourself. And mental fabrication is feelings and perceptions. So in that, that second tetrad where it talks about being sensitive to mental fabrication, okay, you notice what are the feelings, what are the perceptions going through my, that are having an impact on my mind right now? And then can I calm that impact down? In other words, try to get a more refined feeling or get a perception that makes it easier to calm things down. And those perceptions you're going to find have an impact not only on the mind, but also on the breath. If you can think of the breath, as I've been t telling you several times, not as air coming in and out, but a sense of energy that actually originates in the body, then you don't feel like you have to gulp lots of air in. Or if you can think of the breath coming in and out through all your pores, that makes it easier to sort of just be with the whole body and not worry about, about your nose. It's hard to get the whole body to breathe through your nose. 
you'll especially run into this issue as they get to the stage we'll discuss in a few minutes about the fourth jhana, where the breath stops. Now if you're thinking of breath as air and how much you need that air to come in, it's going to be scary when you find you're sitting there very quiet and all, there's no breath. But if you remind yourself, okay, the breath energy is now filling the body, the body's needs for breath are satisfied. If the body needs to breathe, it will breathe. Then you can sit there and be okay. So your perception will change your attitude towards what's happening. That would have been. <laughs> yeah. Okay, number three. The, the word is Bardemukhang in Pali. And if you take it apart in terms of its root and its prefix, Bardi means around and Mukhang either means face or mouth. Now the question is, is that, meant, is that meant to be literal or does it figuratively? Is it used figuratively? And there are a lot of places in the canon where it is used figuratively. And there's not, it doesn't have to be around your mouth, but it means something that's brought to the fore. Now there are some meditation schools that would say it has to be right around your mouth, you can't leave the space around your mouth. But when you look at other places in the canon where they use the word Bharti Mukhang, it means kind of something that's brought forward. So you're trying to bring this to the forefront of your consciousness. Right, right. Okay, well, in, in, this case, in this case, you're actually bringing the breath up to the back of the foreground. Yeah. Okay, this, there'll, there'll be parts of your body that are still, or parts of your mind that are still functioning, that are basically regulating the way you breathe, even when you're, you're unconscious. And we have a lot of intentions that are subconscious. And the way we breathe is one of them. There's an intentional element that goes into the breath. It's part of the mind that re it's basically f regulating, okay, now's the time to breathe in, now's the time to breathe out. And you pretty, put, pretty much put that on automatic pilot a long time ago. Except when there are times when you're you know, wor working hard or having trouble breathing and then, then it gets brought up to the fore. And so what we're trying to do here is bring this more into the foreground and to ask yourself, you know, these decisions that are being made about how you breathe, Who's making them? Are they being made with discernment? Or are they made being made without discernment? Because you, it's, the breath is one of those few physiological processes that could either be automatic or intentional. And so we're trying to make it, take advantage of the fact that it does have its intentional side. Okay, there's, the brain is kind of like the, the instrument that the mind uses. There's a sensitive. There has to be a sensitivity to these things that, before the brain can even function, and, there, and the brain has to be functioning before your mind can be, you know, sensitive to the body. So the two of them work together. Without that sensitivity, you know, everything would be, you'd be dead. The brain couldn't do anything. So there has to be an awareness in there that's getting this whole thing operating. Even when you leave your body, apparently there's still a little string that connects you. <laughs> Not totally gone. Okay, but still, there, you know, you have to be aware of the whole body. So you can't be right here. This is not the only place you want it to be. You want it to be, you want it to be aware of the whole body. Now, one of the ways you can do this is to kind of focus right. You think of focusing right here. But you, sometimes you'll be focusing on, as I've been directing you down to your, your, your navel and your back, all these other places. Okay, but you have to remember, your mind doesn't face forward. Your eyes face forward. You, at, well, even then, you, sometimes your attention can be behind you, right? 
Well, we, it's because we're so used to you know, thinking our eyes are facing forward that we are facing forward. And it's, and it's a good exercise for the mind to say, wait a minute, my mind does not face in any direction. It's my eyes that are facing in that direction. And this helps to, actually helps to develop a more whole body awareness. Yeah, this, this is, this, the third tetrad is obviously about the mind. The fourth tetrad in Satipatthana Sutta is about dhammas, they call it. Or it could be either mental qualities or dhammas in terms of teachings. In this particular case, it's more mental qualities. This one, in, in, the, in, the, in the 16 steps. And you're trying, as we get on, when we talk about how this relates to the four frames of reference, this is developing an equanimity, as you're learning to watch inconstancy and sort of accept the fact, oh yeah, these things are inconstant that I've been focusing on, and I can, should be able to let them go. That's one of the qualities you're trying to develop. Okay, in this case, you're, it could be inconstant just about anything. It could be the breath itself, could it be about mind states, or the feelings around the breath. Yeah, you're, you're, you're with the breath, and at the same time you're watching these other things happening. And you're looking for that particular aspect. The word here in Pali is anupasana, which means to look after. Anu means following, and pasana means to look or to watch. So you're keeping track of something, basically. It's, the Buddha actually uses, has two different terms. There's ubeka and abeka in the close. Ubeka is equanimity. Abeka is simply watching, watching, watching at, at, looking at something as it's happening, in other words, observing. And the two actually go, the two quite a bit go together. Okay, I'm watching that, but I'm learning how not to react. So I, so I can see clearly what's happening. And part of this goes back to that, you make your mind like earth. And when you do that, you, you have to hold on to something. When you're, looking, when you're letting go of something, you've got to have something good to hold on to. And so in this case, you'll be holding on to the breath. But then now you're going to begin, begin letting go of the breath. The question is, where are you going to hold on to then? And that would be, you, you'd get to the state of, okay, I can just be with the observer, and the observer is okay even if the breath goes. And one question I, I tend to get from people who have a Tibetan background, they say, well, you can, when you die, you know, you're, the breath is going to stop. So that you're, you're teaching people a meditation technique that won't be able to take them through death. And they say, whereas we, we look directly at the mind, and the mind is going to be there. And the response is, well, look at, look at this analysis for the breath. We're not just learning about the breath, we're learning about the processes of fabrication in the mind, because those processes are going to continue even after we die. And you have to know those fabrications really well if you don't want to get waylaid by them or misled by them. So in this case, you're looking at, okay, what, what is it that I'm fabricating? Is there something unfabricated that I can find? Okay, in the first two steps, you're just observing. You discern what's happening. In other words, you're learning to see differences. From the rest of it, you are making up your mind. While I breathe in and out, I'm going to be doing X. That's an intention. It's also verbal fabrication. So this is not just going to happen on its own. You have to make up your mind. This is where I need to go. And then a lot of this has to do with, as I said, you're trying to get these three things to stay together. Body, feelings, a feeling of pleasure, and your awareness. And you have to ask yourself, if they're not in balance, what needs to be fixed? Then I will concentrate on fixing that so that we can get everything, everything working together. That can be. The thing is about the breath is that um, 
You're, it's one, it's with you all the time. And two, you can you, you can work with it, you can manipulate it. Like if the breath is not comfortable, you can figure out how, what ways can I do to make it comfortable so it's easier for me to stay with something difficult. I mean, the sensation of just, you know, touching the, touching the chair, it's hard to make that really comfortable. Yeah. But this, the breath is something you can adjust. Effortless, but also at the same time gives you range for adjusting it to make it comfortable in case you're dealing with something really difficult. Okay. We may finish early today. The next passage, passage 13, starts with the same instructions, 16 steps. And then it goes on to talk about how, gosh, I, I left all these footnotes in and I didn't put footnotes. Um, and then it goes to talk about how these four, four tetrads correspond to the four frames of reference in mindfulness practice. Okay, the first one, of course, is your breathing, which is the body. And the Buddhist statement is, I tell you, monks, that this, the in and out breath, is classed as a body among bodies. Okay, in other words, it's, it is a physical phenomena, phenomenon. So that's how we have the body in and of itself. Okay. In, in terms of the second tetrad, or the second foundation, tell you, this careful attention to in and out breaths is classed as a feeling among feelings. That's an interesting statement. The attention is a feeling. But this, I think, is getting to is the fact that the, you're working on feelings not so much as they happen willy-nilly, but your intentional element in giving rise to a feeling. By the way you attend to the breath, you are going to create feelings of either pleasure or pain. You try to give rise to feelings of pleasure. But he's pointing out the extent to which feelings themselves are fabricated. So the way you pay attention is going to determine the feeling. If, you feel, if your attention is consistent and smooth, the feeling will calm down, the feeling, will be, the feeling itself will be smoother. So this gives you some insight into the role in which your intentional engagement with the breath can create feelings. If you've read the Satipatthana Sutta, you notice that the Buddha talks about what he calls feelings of the flesh, feelings not of the flesh. The feelings of the flesh are basically pleasant sight, sound, smell, taste, tactile sensations. Feelings not of the flesh have to do with things that you actually work to give rise to. Now, a painful feeling not of the flesh would be the realization, okay, these sensory impacts are having an impact are having an impact on my mind. I haven't reached the end of the goal. I haven't reached the goal yet. I haven't reached the end of the path yet. That painful realization, okay, there's more work to be done. That's a pain not of the flesh. And that's a feeling that the Buddha actually encourages. Because he said, it's that realization is what's going to give you the motivation to want to practice. In other words, he doesn't say, okay, having a goal is, makes you feel bad, so don't have goals. It's like that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin is making a snowman and he had, you know, he's got the bottom and he's got the middle. He says, I think I'll stop here. <laughs> and Hobbes says, remind me to invest abroad. <laughs> So a painful feeling of, the, of not of the flesh is a realization of, okay, there's work to be done. That's something you give rise to yourself, you cultivate that, actually. A pleasant feeling not of the flesh would be the feelings that come when, when you concentrate. Okay, it's, it's a feeling that you actually give rise to. So the pleasure that comes from getting the mind to settle down, the, the breath feels smooth, your attention to the breath is smooth, and that kind of smooths out the, the roughness and irregularities in the breath. 
And that's a, that's a pleasant feeling, not of the flesh. That's something you actually want to give rise to. For the third tetrad, he says, in terms of the states of the mind, when you're learning how to gladden the mind, steady the mind, and release the mind. I want to go into that a little bit more. I didn't discuss that in much detail. You're sitting here and you're getting kind of drowsy or you're getting kind of glum. You ask yourself, what can I think about that would lift my spirits? And you can do that in one of two ways. Either stay with the breath and say, what kind of breathing will give me more energy? And you try that. Or you may say, I need to switch topics for a little bit to get my mind more encouraged to lift my spirits. And this is when you can switch over to any of those contemplations the Buddha talks about, your recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, recollection of your own virtue, recollection of your own generosity, something that gives rise to a sense of, okay, puts you in a good mood, a mood of self-esteem, a mood of, that, you, that gives you more energy to put into the practice. That would be gladdening the mind. Steadying the mind is when your mind is all over the place. You need to say, I need to get something that you know, fixes my attention right here in the present moment. And for that, the Buddha usually recommends a recollection of death, i.e. death could come at any time. Are you ready to go? And if you're going to die this afternoon, you know, that tsunami they're forecasting here for the Northwest, um, what if all of a sudden it hit, you know, and you had, you had 20 minutes left? Do you want to sit here nodding? I said, no, I better meditate. <laughs> Even as you're running uphill, I said, it might could catch me. Carolyn, I saw that you had that book on Krakatoa at your house. Yeah. Have you read that? Mm -hmm. there's, yeah, there's. The <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that when I, I read it about a couple months ago, and I was thinking, well, here I am coming to the Northwest. Hmm. And they have a description of people trying to escape the tsunami. And it was pretty. There's what these women were pregnant, gave birth as we were running up the hill. Um, there was this boat that was picked up from the from the harbor and deposited, you know, 200 feet up the hill, um, and it was left to rest for the next 80 years or so. So, do you think you can outrun a tsunami? I don't know. <laughs> At any rate, down in California, we think just plain you know, fires, earthquakes, you know, that kind of stuff. When I was in Brazil, I said, "In California, we have earthquakes. What do you think about for you know, to think about mindfulness of death?" And they said, "Robbers." <laughs> so, but that can, that can really steady the mind. So I really got work to do, I've got to do right now. It's interesting that when the Buddha talks about being in the present moment, it's always in the context of death contemplation. Realizing, okay, I don't know how much time I have. I know I have work that has to be done. If I don't do it now, it's not going to get done, so I'm ready to do it now. Recollection of death? Well. Deal with it. <laughs> you're going to say, look, we're going to die anyhow, right? Someday? I mean, even Dick Cheney's going to die someday. <laughs> they keep putting new hearts in him all the time. <laughs> he wears out the ones he's got. Um, <laughs> so you know you're going to have to go at some point, and there's work you've got to do. Right? That's the attitude you should have. This, I guess, is one of the, the benefits of having training in the forest tradition. They ask the question, are you afraid to die? As if that would be a stupid thing to be afraid of. 
You have to get over the fact, okay, I'm going to die and learn how to accept that fact now. What do I do to prepare? So don't worry about the anxiety. They realize the things I'm going to have to give up. So you've got to practice now, giving them up now. Okay, we'll say, well, I'll do what I can. But the best thing to, to sort of straighten things out is, okay, I have to accept the fact that I know I'm going to die. Now how do I prepare? And then just figure out, okay, what's important and what's not. I mean, you read about these people who, you know, they're given three months to, to live by their doctors and they start straightening out their lives. I mean, it's a good thing they straightened out their lives, but it's a shame they waited until the last three months. So, with this tetrad, the Buddha says, I don't say that there is mindfulness of in and out breathing of one of lapsed mindfulness and no alertness. So, at that, in that case, okay, at this point you've got the comfortable feeling, you've got your mindfulness and your alertness working together. That's the state of mind that you're bringing to this. And then finally, the fourth tetrad, he says, one who sees with discernment the abandoning of greed and distress is one who watches carefully with equanimity. In other words, we're talking about putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. This is how you do it. You see that's inconstant. You see it to the point where you develop this passion for it, then you can let it go. And so in order to do that, you have to be watching on with a certain amount of equanimity. So, okay, at the moment, the world doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the state of my mind. And so you, th you see the things of the world that you are attached to and say, for the time being, at the very least, I have to learn how to let them go. And this gives you good practice from the time when you have to let it go. Any questions on the relationship between mindfulness of breathing and those four frames of reference? Just watching. Yeah, the, the, the discernment. Equanimity has to have some discernment in order to be skillful equanimity. You're not just saying, I don't care about anything. You have to be specific about it. There are things I have to realize I can't change, so those are the things I have to develop equanimity for. So that requires discernment to see what those things are. And also requires a sense of priorities. That's an aspect, it's one of the aspects of your sense of the body. Basically, in and out breathing, and they, they talk about that as, as a full body process. So it's one of the ways you experience, one aspect of the way you experience the body. Actually, each of them has a specific duty. You've got mindfulness, which is remembers things. Alertness is what's watching what you're doing. And then the ardency, is, this is where the heedfulness would come in, saying, okay, I've got to do this well. It's interesting that of those three, three qualities, Ajahn Lee puts the ardency with the discernment factor. You realize I got to do this well. That's that's a wise decision. Well, he would be seeing that from from this practice. He says when you're doing this practice, it is actually developing the factors for awakening. When you're doing all four tetrads. Jeez. <laughs> so everybody's going to think you're a plant. <laughs> Okay, let's go to the factors for awakening. Okay, suppose you're focused on the breath. That's mindfulness, obviously. While you're doing that, he says, okay, you analyze. And the Buddha says, when you, you try to look to see what, what kind of breathing is comfortable, what kind of breathing is not comfortable, if it's not comfortable, what do I do to change it? That all comes under analysis of qualities. And then based on that, then you make the effort to 
either become sensitive to bodily fabrication or to calm bodily fabrication, that would be right effort. And so then, or that would become the, the, the persistence as a factor for awakening. And then, as you do the persistence rites correctly, then the state of rapture will arise. And now we're actually getting into the second tetrad. The rapture arises, and then once once the rapture is giving you a sense of nourishment, then things grow calm. Okay, this is where you're, you're beginning to calm mental fabrication. As it gets calm, then you get concentrated, and from concentration to equanimity. That, that actually, each of those four tetrads will actually take you through the process of these seven factors for awakening. That's what he's saying. It's not that you do mindfulness and then, you, then from mindfulness you go to the factors for awakening. In the process of doing the, the analysis of the different things and different kinds of fabrication, sensitizing yourself to that fabrication, looking to see where it is still disturbing, so then you calm it down. That's all the activity of those seven factors for awakening, built right into each of those tetrads. Okay, they will, they will fall away because you have the insight. It's not like I say, today we're going to let go of the factor of identity view. It's more that you're working on this process, and then the actual, when the fetters drop away, that's, that's the result of having seen the deathless. Up until that point, the fetters are going to have the opportunity to keep coming back. For each stage, for each stage, the three, right, right, and then after after you've had the experience of the deathless, and you come back out, and, you're, and you have some realizations. Oh, the, you saw what the Buddha taught. This is this is really true. The Buddha knew what he's talking about. <laughs> the relinquishing means at this point you let go of the path. You let go of the path. In other words, you realize, I don't have to do that path anymore. It is a letting go prior to the state of... Let me back up a bit. You let go of the path right before you have one of those noble attainments. You know, you're working on your concentration, you're working on your discernment. There comes a point where you say, I can't... Anyth even the concentration and the discernment are fabricated. I let them go. That's the relinquishment. Then there's the deathless, and you come back and you realize, oh, I cut a couple of fetters. But they actually do fall away. It's not like you say, well, okay, now you guys get out. <laughs> no, they, 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 they drop as sets. The, the first three fetters, they kind of they, they go clunk together. Yeah, you, you, well, it's good to contemplate beforehand this whole issue of not-self. So you get, It's good to contemplate the issue of not-self beforehand, even before you drop the fetter of identity view. You're learning to apply not self to things that are unconstant, and, you know, the things that get you off the path, and then finally say, well, even the path here is getting is a fabrication that I'm clinging to. There's still some stress in here. Is there an alternative? And then you let you let that go. And then when you come back from the experience of the deathless, the fact that you've seen it means you have no doubt about what the Buddha taught. You don't identify yourself around the aggregates because there were no aggregates in that experience, and then you realize, okay, I did this not simply because I was following instructions or rules about how to behave, but it was actually an, an act of insight. So you're not going to cling to the precepts the same way you did before. You observe them, but you don't have to identify yourself around them. So those things all automatically go, as I said. Well, basically, you're releasing 
that four steps of, of you know, inconstancy, dispassion, that basically shows how you really release. It gives you kind of the steps that, that follow with a release. Now the release can either be what they call mundane release, in which you're just getting the mind into a deeper state of concentration. You saw that, suppose that you're in the first jhana, you say, I don't need all this directed thought and evaluation, it's, it's kind of, I'm tired of talking to myself. Can I just be still for a while and be with the breath? And so you see, okay, you basically see that, okay, you see the talk, you see the talking as something that is coming and going and it's optional. And you say, there are drawbacks to this. I could be much more still and more at peace if I could drop that. And then you, then you, then you drop it, at least you know, temporarily. So you develop some dispassion for it and drop it. So that happens on the mundane level, but also on the, on the transcendent level, when you've seen even the concentration itself, no matter how good it gets, is still going to be fabricated. That's when you let that go. Things that, basically, is this worth identifying with? It's a value judgment. It's not a metaphysical statement. You see it as a, a psychological process that you are identifying with these things and you say, is this an activity that I want to continue with? This saying, this is my because the Buddha actually said, if you try to hold to the view that there is no self, you get yourself all entangled. A lot of confusion. Well, that may have been, I think it more has to do with the, the monks getting involved in debates. Saying, well, could we have to take a position one way or another on the question whether it is or is not a self, otherwise these kings are not going to support us. Well, there's, I mean, for centuries, the, the commentarial tradition has been trying to work that one out. So they saw the issue. I mean, I, in fact, I feel really grateful that I was trained in the forest tradition because they were not in. They, they did not take the commentaries as a guide, and so you have, you know, John Mahabhu and a John Lee and a John Cha and all the rest saying, "Look, this issue of we're not there to say there is no self. It's basically, it's, you know, not self and self and not self are parts of tools we use in the path. When we get to the end, we drop both. Each of them says it in a different way, but that's one of the reasons I don't read the commentaries that much." <laughs> Well, the cessation comes first. The cessation of the things that you're creating, that comes first. And then you realize, I don't even need the path to do this anymore, so you drop the path. That's the culmination. Right. One of the, one of the noble fruits, yeah. That's the culmination. Okay, that's, that's why he says focusing on it. You're just watching, oh, that falls away too. You, know? you, see, you watch that fall away too. Then the final section of that sutta, the clear knowing and release. Okay, when these, each of these factors is brought to its culmination, clear knowing and release. Clear knowing is basically seeing things as they have come to be, as they actually are functioning, and that's when you let them go, and that's when you're released. He says, okay, it's dependent on seclusion. In other words, it's dependent on the seclusion of concentration, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation, resulting in relinquishment. The relinquishment is the final step. That we, that we arrive at. And we've seen that pattern going through, beginning with the fourth tetrad, all the way through. From dispassion comes cessation, then comes relinquishment. Yeah. Disenchantment followed by dispassion. Yeah. You say, why would I get involved with this? Why do I want to eat this? this is, I, I keep on making the, the analogy with Hostess Twinkies. Give me the mind. Gosh, if I could get you all awakened this afternoon. Huh? Ha, 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 ha.
you find yourself going back and forth in being because mundane right view is dealing in terms of worlds and people. You know, I am a person who has this karma, I will be going to these worlds. I'm living in this world, I may go to another world. When you get to the Four Noble Truths, you're not even thinking about worlds or people at all. It's just, okay, there are these actions and they have these results. And mundane right view is good because it gives you motivation for why you want to go for a transcendent right view. You know, when I'm dealing with Brock, I will deal with Brock on, the, on terms of mundane right view. But when I'm sitting and meditating, I don't need to think about Brock or John Jeff. It's just, okay, these are the actions that I'm in, involved in right now. So you adopt, the, you adopt the level of view that's appropriate for the activity that you're involved in. Yeah, at that point, it's, I mean, there's actually another level of right view that goes beyond that even, where everything gets dropped. You know, with the Four of Noble Truths, you've got, you've got suffering that's got to be comprehended, and the, and the cause that has to be abandoned, and the cessation has to be realized, and the path that has to be developed. And then John Munn says there comes a point where all four become one. And this is expressed in the canon where everything that you see arising and passing away is just nothing but stress. It's to be abandoned. So it becomes woman duty. But then, but then you know, the, the awake, awakened person can still use these other right views, in the levels of right view when it's appropriate. Yes, you abandon whatever's getting in the way. And anything that's causing stress, you try to, you try to abandon it. And when you realize, oops, everything is done. Okay, can we have a 20-minute break? I'm going to see if we can get out of here a little early. I've been warned that the ferries for in British Columbia do not wait for monks. So. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.